I'm hip. I'm not square. I'm alert. I'm awake. I'm aware. I am always on the scene. Making the rounds, taking the sounds. I read Playboy magazine. I'm so hip. Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York jazz artist and singer Veronica Swift. She talked about her latest 2019 CD called Confessions out on Mac Avenue Records featuring the great pianist Benny Green along with Emmett Cohen. She is the daughter of a renowned jazz pianist and celebrated jazz singer, so jazz is in her bloodstream. She recorded two CDs as a child, one at nine with Richie Cole and one at 13 with saxophonist Harry Allen. She is only 25, but already a seasoned jazz soul with so much more to do. So please get to know her and dig this interview, my friends. Veronica, hey, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz today. I appreciate it. Of course. So let's dive right in here and let's talk about confessions. And I want to know from mm-hmm. you, you're, you're with uh, Benny Green and Emmett Cullen. I mean, you have a powerful mm-hmm. lineup. This had to be a joy to make. So talk to me a little bit about kind of your artistic aim with this project? Well, this was originally the breakout. You know, I've, I've had records before, but this is like the breakout record. I knew there was going to kind of be a staple moment in my career. You know, I just graduated, moved to New York, and this I wanted to tell that story. Like, you know, this is a classic, uh, like anyone who moves, who moves to the big city after they graduate from school and the story of like their conflict with turning to the next page and turning to the next chapter, like trying to make amends with the fact that they're they're not kids anymore. You know, I mean, I'm, of course I'm young, but you know, we kind of cling on to our childhood sometimes when we don't want to grow up and we're resisting to the change. So that's what this uh, this is about. It's that story, and everyone's been through that. Very cool. Yeah, I like that. The kind of the coming of age. Where were you born mm-hmm. and raised? I was born and raised in Charlottesville, and that's where my house is right now. And that's where I live. That's where I reside when I am off the road, which is hardly ever. But, um, yeah, Charlottesville, Virginia. And, I mean, I moved to New York after college, but um, about a year and a half after living there, I was just like, there wasn't there wasn't a, any point to it because I was traveling so much. And I was working there enough that I was just like, I need to be in the country when I'm not working. Now, I know that your folks were in the jazz scene. So I want to kind of, I want to kind of faction Mm -hmm. this out, fork this question out into how did you initially really kind of come to it? Was it through them and who, who were big influences other than your parents on your jazz walk? Well, I was always around jazz, of course. My mom and dad were, when I was like, before I was really making concrete memories, like I just remember like hanging out with like Bob Durrell and, Phil Woods and like these like these giants, you know, and they were just like a family. But besides my parents, I mean, my parents never really pushed me. People always like their stage parents, you know, like put me on stage and made me do this, made me do that. No, I came into it very naturally. Um, my mom actually went to a a conference because she's a music educator. She went to a conference and met this band leader who was there. Um, his name is Dave Adams. And this is when I was nine years old. Dave uh, said to my mom, you know, if you have any kids who would play jazz or something or want to play jazz, I have this youth jazz band, and we record every summer, and we travel and do the Telluride Jazz Festival 
blah, blah, blah. And she came up to me and was like, you want to audition? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> I wanted to be on stage, you know. I, I, I wanted to perform. It seemed cool. But it wasn't like jazz. Doesn't really give, I didn't really care. You know, I just wanted to perform. And the audition song was twisted because it was, you know, it was for a singing position in the band. And I was already playing trumpet at that point, too. So I also got the gig because I played trumpet. Yeah, and that was my first professional experience was with that band, which is called the Young Rascals Jazz Project. And that was my first appearance at Telluride Jazz Festival, which I had a long history with. You did actually, when you were younger as well, have, you were you were at the Jazz Standard, you recorded two CDs, one at nine with Richie Cole, and then 13 with Harry Allen. So, yeah. you know... That's relative, That's pretty young in the world of of any world, any music world, any artistic world to be doing anything. What was your cognitive recollection at this point of what you were doing, who you were around? Were you absorbing by osmosis or, or by what you were really seeing? What was going on when you were doing these things on a big stage at such a young age? What was going on? I was just happy to be there doing it. It's like, you know, I knew this was going to be what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, but it wasn't like I, I didn't have like that kind of pinnacle breakthrough moment where like, this is what I want to do, you know, there was never like that initial, it was just kind of like, like you said, osmosis, like I had just always known, this is, this was just the way of life, I just absorbed it and accepted it and, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world, um, but I did know at a young age that this was kind of like, I knew that I was very good at it and that because of my upbringing, I knew it was unique and that not a lot of kids could do it. So I, I, liked, I liked that, that I had something special, that I was given this special opportunity and this rare opportunity. I knew I had to follow through with it. So before we depart kind of the younger realm of your life, yeah. was there ever, is there to this day an album that you listened to when you were young that just brings back good memories that really get you going? I would say Harps, the Bach Harpsichord Concerto, that record, and the um, Rite of Spring. Um, these are, like, records that really changed my life. These were records that, um, as a kid, they, they were, I was uh, listening to them before I really understood music. These records were, I mean, but the Bach, the Harvest Grove Concerto really made me want to like learn how to I wanted to sing that kind of stuff you know and luckily for me bebop is kind of like that you know <laughs> but it, it, I really wanted to sing like I want to be able to sing that in tune and like hit all these notes with precision like like what Bobby McFerrin was doing and then Ride of Spring just like was the first piece of music I listened to where I was like this hits every human emotion possible like in one sitting you know, because there are definitely pieces that cater to, like, oh, this is generally, like, a sad piece, or this is a, hits anger. No, Ride of the Spring hit everything for me. And I was just so transfixed by it. So, to this day, that's still my favorite piece of music. So, at 25, you've seen so much up to this point. Do you feel like an old jazz soul, or how do you feel about where you're at? Kind of, like, your odometer says one thing, but your mind's going to stay another. I feel like I've seen what, I mean, my, my experience is my, I mean, I just, you know, I have a lot to learn in other ways too. Like I, 
what I have experienced. I'm trying to think how to phrase this because I don't want to come across as like, who well, has been through a lot and sounds pompous or something. But I um, there's a lot I'm missing too, you know. Like I've been through some. I've I've been through a loss a lot in my life. Um, you know, I lost my house to a fire, my child at home, and that was like right at out the gate in college. Lost my dad, and you know, everyone's you know at this point has hopefully been through some pretty intense breakups too. But there's a lot I'm, I'm missing out on too with my social life right now because I. That's the sacrifice I'm making by, you know, by working, doing the the whole touring thing. So, you know, I I hope that I can, you know, catch up someday, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, without a doubt. So in 2015, you got second place in the Thelonious Monk Jazz competition. Yeah, How many that doors? changed everything. Well, that's what I'm saying. How many doors did that open up for you? Well, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't put a number on I don't know, but definitely... Something like that uh, puts your name on the radar in ways that it never has been before, because of the prestigiousness of the competition. I mean, I I remember I got, you know, I got gigs that I probably would have gotten eventually, but it just sped up the process, you know. Like you know, my my parents knew the cat who books at Iridium, so you know, I probably would have gotten that gig eventually anyway. But because of the month competition, that people felt it would be prudent to put me in those rooms so I got the gig at Iridium and then from there I think someone heard about me and suggested Salenti over at uh, Birdland I should play Birdland and I think Birdland getting that gig at Birdland was really what completely I mean the monk competition led to that of course but Birdland was the big the big moment you know the other thing that I, you know, and this is kind of a link to Kansas City a little bit, but it's more broader than that. Mm-hmm. You actually got to be on stage with Marilyn May at Jazz and Lincoln Center. What was that like? I was on stage with her before that, too. I was, cool. uh, she and I did this cabaret, uh, little cabaret thing out in um, Long Island or something. There was like some cabaret festival thing. That was cool. It was me, my mom, and Alan May. And then the Michael Feinstein thing happened also, which was a big moment. And being on stage with her and being on stage with Michael, too. I mean, I was just like, you know, but but it was also the same feeling like, like I, I, I'm honored to be here, but I'm also like, I, I deserve to be here. Like, I've worked hard to be here. And being able to be in between those two places is confidence. Like, I deserve this. And also the humility of, you know, thanking the, the spirits that, You've been put in this position, and I think if you constantly reside in that happy medium, that balance between the two, like you could do anything. You have such power behind you. Well, you know, I actually saw and met Marilyn May back in December here, and I was blown away by that that charm oh, that she yeah. had and everything yeah. that she did, and the way she interacted with everybody. Because that's the swagger she had. She's almost ninety. She, she, there's no ego, but there is this notion that she deserves to be where she's at. And, um, yeah, I but she's even, so humble too. Totally. And, yeah. And, and the thing about her is, is that when Johnny mm-hmm. Carson says that you're his favorite and that you've been on the Tonight Show the most times during his tenure, <laughs> I don't know, I, I don't know that you can outdo that, but I definitely got the notion too that she's kind of becoming 
this hipster with the young crowd in New York and, and kind yeah. of get the recognition that she never had before, but I don't get the sense that she has any remorse. But I guess that's kind of what you're saying. You're working hard. This is your place. This is where you're at, and you're not going to look to just share. You want to be there. Yeah, I mean, I just – I don't really have ambitions in the career sense. You know, I'm not – despite what you know, people think I'm like this overnight success and then I climb the ladder, this, I, I've never been – ambitious in that way i'm ambitious creatively you know but like i could care less if i put on a production that's at you know if it's on broadway or if it's on a local theater somewhere you know i i just i'm happy that there's people who want to listen and i'll go where i did you know kind of just follow the the path in front of me and luckily the path has been successful (laughs) yeah absolutely so with Emmett. Cohen and Benny Green, you know, you're mm-hmm. the, the, you're you're on the CD with them and you're performing with them. What do you learn from them? What have you gotten from performing with them? First of all, Emmett's my one of my oldest friends, and he's on the, one of my other records from before this one. And we had this moment where we recorded this song, and it was like in the studio, one take. He had just gotten in, flown in, and it was so magical. And we just knew in that moment that. We wanted to make music together. He, this was it for me. I found my parish, um, and he had found his singer kind of, you know, love at first sound. <laughs> hmm. um, and then with Benny, I was I just wanted to play with him because he was so rooted in the same tradition that I was. We have a very similar upbringing. Our parents exposed us to bebop. And, and you know, like, and it understands me on multiple levels creatively, theater, and not just jazz. And, and with Benny, he's like my favorite So I was like, what better people to have representing the music with me than these two people? And it wasn't like a career move, you know? It was just, these are my musical brothers, so. And they accurately represent the musical stage, too. Yeah. I was kind of like both of them at the time. Do you have a passion for that great American songbook, the vocalese classics, the 20s and 30s, which that era, and when we talk about that, what immediately comes to mind is this level of timelessness. And my question to you is this. Mm -hmm. Are you aspiring for that level of timelessness? Do you think they were doing that, or do you think it just kind of happened? How do you think that evolution happened, and why are you so intrigued by that era? Well, I'm intrigued by the era because, this, like you said, this timeless music, people from all over the world, like I just came back from China, and people from all over the world, if they're, when they open up to the, these music, these, um, this music, these stories, people of all ages and people who have never heard jazz versus jazz aficionados, I mean, it, it reaches, stories reach everyone. I love that especially with people who've never heard jazz before, when they hear these songs for the first time, I'm seeing these songs for the first time by singing them to people like that. So that's why I like singing them. I mean, for a lot of these people, it was just like, this is the way I make my money. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write, like, Gershwin, I'm going to write these songs and get the paycheck, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, of course, there's passion involved. But I, I just I mean, like, for us, in jazz music, this is not the mainstream art form, and I mean, yes, luckily I can make a living doing it, but really we have to do it because it's, you know, we have some deep connection rooted 
with this. I wonder if people back then, you know, these original recordings, you know, people like, you know, the, the composers and these singers and that hand song, these old singers, I wonder if they knew, like, this music would be so historically rooted if people performing it hundreds of years from now would feel the way that we do. I wonder what they thought. I wouldn't, couldn't tell you. Well, this is the thing that I, I always kind of try to probe into a little bit. I remember mm. talking to Chuck Israel at one point. I was asking oh, him about yeah. that, you know, just talking about that era where Miles and Coltrane and Chet and all these guys were performing, and I was like, do, were they cognizant? I mean, were they, did they understand that they were galvanizing an era, especially in the mid to late 50s and even the early 60s, that they were doing something that was going to be so revered as, as time went on in jazz that it would become the focal point for a lot yeah. of what people look at. And he said they had no idea. They were literally yeah. running and having fun. It was almost like a Kerouac novel was unfolding in front of them. They were just yeah. running and, and driving and laughing and smoking and drinking and, 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 and loving everything They're around them. They're rock and roll, man. Right. That's all they did. <laughs> they weren't sitting down like in this like Illuminati basement saying, okay, guys, this is it. This is going to be it. We got it. And no one I knows know. what That's we do. a lot of young people think today when they're trying to do this. They're trying to be the next innovators. I'm like, you guys yeah. get it wrong. You guys have it wrong. You kids think you're going to be innovators. That's not how innovators are. They don't right. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> they just they just did it. In fact, I'm watching a documentary on Bill Gates right now, and Bill was just this guy. just blows me away by how much he does now as a philanthropist. But when he was – starting and he was writing code that's all he did he wasn't thinking i'm going to invent something that's going to be on 90 percent of the desktops in the world and everybody's right. going to have a computer he was just this guy that like did what he did so yeah just like you're saying no one goes into it saying some people do i think there's certain people that have an ego like that but i think most people are like <laughs> i'm going to give the world something and hopefully they embrace it but it's like it. i said it's a creative ambition it's not like a I mean, I think some of the greatest innovators were mostly that they're creatively ambitious, but they weren't. I mean, of course, there's the ambition there uh, to be successful. I mean, you have to have that kind of ego if you're going to be on that kind of road to, you know, domination or success or however you want to put it. It Without the creative ambition being the first and foremost priority, I think that, you know, that's where... You have to recalculate your priorities. You had this fortunate chance growing up to see your folks perform and all these people around you, but what was one of the first live shows that you really felt like you owned, you saw, it mo it moved you, and you remember it to this day? Hmm. It wasn't a jazz uh, concert. It would have to have probably been the first concert that I saw where I, like, where it was live, and I was like, I want to do that. I'm telling you, it was Lady Gaga, man. The grandiose production. Like, I mean, I always loved theater and opera, and I'd seen opera before, that too, and I saw an opera show, and I was like, I want to do this, just in terms of, like, I want to put on a production of this grand level, this theater, this drama, this everything's big, you know, and that's what, that's what drew me to that kind of performance. And I know for me, jazz isn't that. It's about subtlety. It's about... What can we do, tell through song? And that's why, like, I can, I'm in a place where I can do, I, I can do both at this, you know, different times. I'm in a very lucky position where, you know, I can do, tell the story through jazz. And then I also can tap into theater as well. 
um, down the road I plan to. Uh, and when I saw Lady Gaga, I was like, this music, this everything is part of this, it's all connected through this ginormous, uh, you know, stage and the props and the scenery and the music. It was just all sensory overload, and I loved it. And then I saw Marilyn Manson, who was my idol, and that was the same feeling I got, except it was like the hardcore the heaviness and the symbolism and um, everything, the metaphors he was telling through his music. That's what drew me to that. So I think it was it would be either, you know, one of those concerts that changed my life. Well, and Lady Gaga did some time with Tony and, and, and produced some really good jazz stuff. Yeah, but she's a pop star, man. Yeah, like, right. That's it. It's her wheelhouse. Like, wow. Like, yeah. I mean, and I'm glad. She, like, same thing with her. She's like, reached a point where she could literally just do anything, and it's cool. Yeah. You know, that's like, that's, the, that's like I said, I'm creatively ambitious. That's where I want to be. Like, people ask, what are your dreams and this and that, is to be able to be that chameleon that I knew that was, and, and be able to reach all these different audiences through different mediums and it's like totally okay it's accepted it's not frowned upon that's like the dream right there and she's reached that so yeah and you know that's the thing that's so good about her is that she's so big now she doesn't have to wear a meat dress to a awards gala anymore you know she's she's kind of about I like all that, of... that you know that's kind of my thing yeah. i love when people i would i would wear that i probably wear, i'll probably wear something crazy to the grammys my first grammys yeah. i'll probably wear some like bdsm stuff yeah. No, and I think that's cool that she did that, but I, I think she's it. at a different creative point in her life where oh, yeah. you know, she's gonna she's gonna be in a in a movie that's gonna move people and that kind of thing. So she's so reaching I a different she, audience now through her yeah. music. It's cool. Yeah. And and I think the cool thing too is is that you reach this level of, of success and fame and you can do that. You can branch out and you can you know, you can you can explore your creative head, so to speak. Um, I do miss the meat dresses, though. Yeah, <laughs> right. Miss, yep. That's like, that's where I want to go. It's like, dang, let's see how crazy we can do this. I love that. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me when I was growing up watching Madonna, you just never knew what she was going to do. Was there exactly. going to be a cross on fire? Was she going to have some wacky outfit? Mm-hmm. Was she going to piss off an entire city during a show? You know, you just never knew what she was going to do, you know. I so, love it. Oh, yeah. my heroes. <laughs> <laughs> So, they, but what people don't understand me, they do it all out of love, and they really do. There's so much love for yeah. the art and respect for the art these people Absolutely. have. Absolutely. Sure they do. Sure they do. Um, so I think you've, you've, you've answered this question, but I should probably ask it right up front mm-hmm. so you can just answer it concisely. Why do you love jazz? I love jazz music because... Well, first and foremost, it's my it's my roots, you know. A lot of people who play jazz, really their roots are somewhere else, and jazz was their kind of like their passion project. And for me, it's not like a passion project in terms of like, like for me when I, rock and roll is, you know. But my relationship with jazz music is literally my family. It's figuratively my family too, you know. And my relationship with it is too. And I love it because it keeps me grounded and whenever I feel like I'm lost or floating in thin air, it's what keeps me rooted to what what I'm really trying to do here. And that just it reminds me like of what I'm really trying to do 
is stay true to my child in me. I think that anyone who's creative needs to keep their child close. Not their child, their themselves as a child. Sure. You know, like my nine-year-old Veronica versus my seven-year-old Veronica. I can't create well unless I'm connected to that. And jazz is what keeps me connected to that. Also, I love the music because of its timelessness, as we have been, as we had talked about before. It reaches. It, it's one of the most universal types of music. Um, you know, jazz and classical connect more audiences on a grand, grander scale than I've ever seen. Yeah, I would, and also just swing. Like <laughs> I can't yeah. describe it, but no other music has that. It's like the bounce in the, in the step, the, especially the early 20s swing. It's just so good. I'm getting something I'm not getting from anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I need my fix of swing, man. That's right, that's right. Um, I remember Randy Weston one time explained to me kind of the etymology of jazz, and I've never forgotten it. It totally freaked me out when he did it because it makes sense, but the way he said it, he was like, you know what, Joe, I just got to tell you, I've been to Africa a lot, and you know why it came from there, because everything swings. The elephant tail swings, the trees swing, the the giraffe swings, that is everything. 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 Yeah. everything you look at swings. The people swing, everybody, you know, and it's like I just probably knew oh, that yeah. deep down, but to visualize that as part of the curtain, it's like there's the birth right there of the genre, the idiom, whatever you want to call it. It's pretty cool. So everything's going to come down to this. Final question. Everyone has their perception, their interpretation of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans, but you're running your life. Who do you think you are? Um, I'm just some I, – I think I'm really just some crazy, kooky person who's like a chameleon. I think the chameleon, but I'm not – you know, I don't see myself being a person that wants to mix genres or anything like that but i definitely want to be able to reside in these different musical and artistic worlds i do it in a very natural way not who i am i'm not just a jazz singer i'm not just a rock and roll shock artist i'm not just a playwright or an actress these are all equally important parts of my life i'm a storyteller that's who i am man that's the real genre here, storytelling. So if people ask who am I, that's, that's what I like to tell stories through whatever means possible. Right on. That's beautiful. It's a great way to wrap everything up. Veronica, thank you for taking a minute out Thanks, Neon man. Jazz. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest singers and players in New York City, Virginia, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Veronica for her time, stories, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.